Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number smart bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 smart bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Yeah, so so I would say I would first start with like on the outside, you you definitely look put together. You are a very kind of ambitious person potentially. You work really hard. Um, you have maybe a lot of achievements under under your belt. Um, you may be energetic. Um, you seem to just get things done. Um, it's that person that really is kind of like doing it all, if you will, or you're like, wow, that person just kind of like manages it all. How are they doing that? But internally, it's a totally different experience. and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctorate in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, we have Dr. Kelly Vincent, who is a licensed clinical psychologist, a certified yoga teacher, author of True You, a self-discovery journal, and co-founder of Nourished Wellness Group, a holistic mental health wellness collective. Her passions include supporting individuals struggling with anxiety, trauma, self-esteem, and life transitions. She utilizes a mind-body approach with her clients as she strongly believes in integrating the whole self in treatment. Dr. Vincent, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while because we're going to be talking all about anxiety today. I know something that you specialize in. And something I think mostly everyone, if I can say that, lives with to some capacity at some level. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, so, you know, but there's obviously, you know, it, it's a spectrum. So there's different levels of anxiety. And some people may live with what we call high functioning anxiety yeah. in our world. And people may not even know they have it. You know, they may think that. Um, you know, they just work really hard all the time and they don't take breaks and they're a workaholic or they may have other names for it. So I want to dig a little deeper with you today and, you know, what exactly is it and, you know, how do we, how do we manage it in our lives? So. Such a good question. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So first, when I started posting this on Instagram, it got so much of a response in the sense that so many people could could relate to it. Sure. So the the way that I describe it is first off, too, it's not a formal clinical diagnosis. Um, it's more a way of to describe an individual who's struggling with anxiety but is not meeting criteria for a formal DSM diagnosis. So this person is is has a you know a strong sort of anxious experience internally, but externally you wouldn't you wouldn't know. Um, and it, the real kicker is that it's not impairing their functioning. So one of the main criteria for most diagnoses within the DSM is that it has to be impairing your functioning yes. capacity. But when it comes to high functioning anxiety, you are functioning relatively well, if not very well. Um, so it sort of kind of gets overlooked and you just don't assume, you know, that it's anything that you should even kind of reach out for support or anything like that. It's just sort of how you function. 
Um, but it definitely can present in very different ways. And like you said, like the person may not even be, may not even recognize that like, oh wait, like I, I think I do struggle with anxiety, but I don't, I never really named it that. I just named it that I, I work all the time. Right. Um, so yeah, it can be, it can be an intense experience for sure. Exactly. And so, you know, going into that, you know, uh, 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 like you said, since it is very high functioning, people are functioning on a level that, you know, again, it, it may be unbeknownst to them that there's there's actually maybe something, you know, an underlying um, right. you know, anxiety underneath. So what does it look like? Like if someone has high functioning anxiety, again, we use the word, you know, both of us use the term workaholic or something like that. But but what does it actually look like if someone has high functioning anxiety? What would what would be some signs that they would look in, in, you know, internally about themselves where they might think, oh, okay, I might need to do something about this or, you know, or maybe they see it in their spouse or, you know, a friend or something like that. Yeah. So so I would say I would first start with like on the outside, you you definitely look put together. You are a very kind of ambitious person, potentially. You work really hard. Um, you have maybe a lot of achievements under, under your belt. Um, you may be energetic. Um, you seem to just get things done. Um, it's that person that really is kind of like doing it all, if you will, or you're like, wow, that person just kind of like manages it all. How are they doing that? But internally, it's a totally different experience. Internally, there's a lot of worry. There's overthinking. Maybe there's a lot of fears that come up that you're trying to manage. Um, there's a lot of fatigue, both mental f- fatigue, uh, physical fatigue. Um, there might be some people-pleasing tendencies, perfectionism. You might have some self-blame. Essentially, it's just this internal experience that's really heavy and and in a way so so hard to kind of manage. But on the outside, you would never really even know. Um, and maybe your closest like friends and family and your spouse or whatnot, they kind of know. Um, but you just, you don't really classify it as any sort of like big issue because again, you're, it's normally like, this is just how you function. This is just how you live in the world. Um, but it can, it can be really, really draining both mind and body, um, because you're just pushing yourself, pushing yourself. But, um, yeah. Exactly. Well, I think you just described me in a nutshell. <laughs> no, really. I mean, I, I I do have those tendencies for sure. You know, I'm 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 cognizant of it, and you know, I'm mindful and in, in, intentional about you know um, how I act and you know what goes on inside. Obviously, you know, being being in the same field as yourself, you know, yeah. so I, I I have that. But but I do tend to be that way. You know, yeah. I, I do everything you just described externally and internally. I do tend to be that way. So. Um, so let me ask you this, you know, how does someone become anxious? I mean, how, how does that happen? You know, is it something that, you know, people are, are, are kind of born with, it's like a predisposition to, or is it something they kind of learn, you know, from their parents and society? I mean, how does that even happen where someone can become a very, you know, have high functioning anxiety? Yeah. So, and I kind of look at it, you know, when it comes to like anxiety sort of in its more truer form, sometimes it can kind of be a little different than the high functioning piece. Um, but the, the research kind of indicates that it's a combination of both genetic factors and environmental. So with just anxiety, let's just kind of talk anxiety in general. It can be anything from, yes, like a, um, a genetic predisposition to like, a, say, a neurotic personality trait, or it could be um, modeling, right? Like maybe you had a mom that was super worried all the time about your safety, say, and the, and commonly or, or often like made comments about, you know, be careful or watch out for this. You may then as a child internalize, um, ooh, the world's not safe. People are not safe. And then as an adult, you kind of notice yourself maybe a little bit more hypervigilant, maybe just a little bit more worried, maybe a little bit more aware. So it can definitely 
be molded within us as kids. And again, our parents do the best they can with the skills that they have. So not to blame our parents (laughs) um, because they probably were brought up in a certain way as well. But we can definitely be modeled that anxious kind of tendencies and, and behaviors and thought processes and whatnot, but also it can be very environmental. So for instance, maybe you're, um, you know, uh, in a car accident and, uh, all of a sudden, you know, it was, it was not, of course, car accidents can be really scary. And then the next time you, you get in a car, you're around cars, the anxiety starts to form around it, right. A fear of another car accident. Right. Um, so, and that, and that can be the case with, with, with so many things like public speaking and maybe it doesn't go well, or maybe at a job, um, you know, you, you're presenting yourself in a certain way and, and you totally crash and burn for lack of a better word. Um, it can yeah. create anxiety around it and create a fear that it's going to happen again or a fear that you're not good enough. So anxiety is very based on, on fear. Um, so it, it's, it, it doesn't discriminate it, you know, anybody can have anxiety. And I think, like you said, in the very beginning, I think all of us have a little bit of anxiety in certain situations or with certain people or certain experiences. And then some really, really experience it while others, it's maybe not as, um, overwhelming. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And I want to talk to you about, if this type of anxiety is healthy and how someone can minimize it. But we're going to take a quick break and pause just for a minute before I want to hear that answer. Okay, so I would love to know, is it healthy to live with this type of anxiety? If someone has, again, it's not debilitating, it's not affecting maybe, you know, their their job performance or their marriage or, you know, whatever the case may be. But is it healthy yeah. at all to live with high functioning anxiety? So I kind of, yeah, it's a great question. And I kind of look at it as a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, and I think a lot of people can relate to it that do experience this where it actually can serve you. <laughs> it mm. can make you ambitious. It can make you driven. It can make um, you on top of things, organized, um, detail-oriented, right? Like it, it kind of, it essentially is sort of activating that sympathetic nervous system and that sort of mobilized energy. It can kind of mobilize you into kind of moving forward or doing whatever it is that you need to get done. So in some ways it, it can serve you. And I, and I would think like, you know, for you, for you, right? Like you, you're a therapist, you have a higher education, you have this wonderful podcast, right? You have amazing things that you've accomplished. And I could imagine maybe that a little <laughs> bit of that anxiety might've fueled some of that achievement. Oh, sure. Uh, so yeah, it can be a good thing. However, long-term, it's definitely not a way of, um, long-term, it's not helpful. Um, long-term, it can really impact the mind and body in different ways. It can lead to chronic illness. It can lead to, you know, total burnout, um, both in the mind and the body. Like it, it can really, really impact us. And a lot of that, or a lot of the reasoning behind that is because with most people with high function anxiety, the, the nervous system is just so activated for so long that there's no time for rest, recovery, and recal- recalibration. So if the system is always on, um, that's going to start to kind of deteriorate um, the functioning of those systems. So mm-hmm. it's so important to kind of just be aware of how we move in the world and how we're approaching things um, to kind of see if that is sort of our tendency and when we can kind of pull back and sort of intentionally rest, intentionally recalibrate, intentionally bring on that parasympathetic part of our nervous system, that rest digest part of our nervous system so that we can recuperate essentially. So it's, it's a yes and no to answer that yeah. question. It can help, but it definitely long-term, it, it can really be um, kind of devastating to the, to the mind and body in a lot of ways. 
Oh, sure. I, I can only imagine. And, you know, um, <clears throat> and I suffer from burnout. Like I said, I know I definitely, um, my, I struggle with high functioning anxiety myself and never really put a term to that. You know, like you said, I kind of lived my life and I was, again, very driven. And, you know, I almost didn't know otherwise. Right. Um, actually, until I had kids, I actually didn't realize how, <laughs> how bad it might have been oh. until I started doing, like you said, telling my kids, oh, make sure you're safe. Or I'd worry about their, if they got sick or, you know. Um, that's when I started realizing, oh, wow, like, I think I have some anxiety. <laughs> um, until I had kids, I just thought I just was, you know, like you said, driven and, you know, really wanted this success. And it was almost like a dopamine release. Like when I would get something new or something big that I worked towards, it would feel so good that I'd want to keep going. Totally. And, and yes, kids can do that too. I will, I will agree with that one. Yeah. And when we think of high function anxiety too, there could be much more than just like an anxious predisposition or modeling. Like it could also be very rooted in our belief systems, right? So if we grow up, like say, um, you know, I'll, I'll use myself as an example, a little self-disclosure, but like with my dad, it was sort of like, nothing was ever good enough, right? Like, right. like, oh, you brought home an A minus, why not an A? And it was always very, very casual comments. It wasn't super critical, but I started to internalize like, oh, like that's not enough. I got to do more. I got to do more. Maybe I'll make him proud if I do this or if I do that. All very subconscious, exactly. all unaware. Um, and so that kind of drove me to like, oh, well, if I make this achievement or if I go after this really big thing, then maybe he'll see me, right? So it also can be very, very rooted in, um, our family systems, the family dynamics, what what belief systems got ingrained at a very early age, um, our sense of worth, how how we value what we value as being of worthy, right? So like if if we're achieving and we're successful, then we're worthy. So it's it's it there. It can be definitely a combination of a lot of things um, that yeah. aren't necessarily our fault at all. But until we kind of bring awareness to it, of like, ooh, like this is how I'm operating. Oh, and here's the reasons as to why. Here's how I want to shift and maybe. Uh, tweak that a bit because I don't see this as being a long term. It's not sustainable. Um, yeah. And also with kids too, right? Like we we want to hopefully model as best as we can to them, you know, to kind of um, you know see that within themselves or see how that can impact them. So um, yeah, it, it's it's definitely complicated and layered. At it is. It is. So so you know, for those who who are listening right now, they may say to themselves, "Oh, I might have some high functioning anxiety going on." Yeah. So what do we do about it? How maybe can we minimize some of the 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 pushing that we do to ourselves or you know the the overworking, the overstressing, the overworrying, um the overthinking? How do we minimize some of those things to to lead a, a healthier, a mindfully healthier, you know, mental, emotional, physical life? Yes, I think that's a million dollar question, right? It there. is. <laughs> um, and there's, I mean, there's so many things that we can do, right? And I think like we kind of touched on this a little bit, but just the awareness around it, I think is key, right? Awareness of any of our habits and our behaviors and our thinking patterns is helpful to kind of get that inside look, right? Like kind of take that sort of 10,000 foot view of maybe what is going on. So the more awareness that we build and how we approach things, like if we have new project, like how are we, how are we kind of... Um, um, yeah, how are we setting ourselves up to kind of get that project done? Is it that really intense high energy? Okay, maybe how can I kind of tweak that a bit? So it, it kind of depends on the situation and the person and kind of the roots, but I think awareness, um, I also think digging and kind of understanding um, the roots of it can be really helpful and really enlightening. And, um, you know, therapists can help with that or just kind of reflecting on your own through journaling can be really, really um, beneficial. And then I think when it comes to coping, um, it's really about finding what works 
for you. So we could have, you know, all the research point to like meditation being the most wonderful thing ever. But if that doesn't work for you, because maybe of your history or previous traumas or whatever, then that's okay. It doesn't need to work for you. So I'm hoping it's really about finding and exploring and experimenting all kinds of different strategies to figure out what helps calm your nervous system down. So I think that's another big component of managing any kind of anxiety is this nervous system regulation piece, really getting attuned with your nervous system. Like what state am I in? Okay, what's what's triggering that state? And then how can I bring my nervous system back down to kind of more of an equilibrium? So I think nervous system education and the nervous system regulation type of skills um, can be really effective. So deep breathing, maybe some cold exposure, cold plunges, um, even like humming and singing can really help your nervous system regulate. Um, there's so many. I think we could do a whole other podcast just on COVID. I know. <laughs> uh, I know. <laughs> and, you know, one thing that's worked from deep breathing does, you know, just taking a minute to just take a couple deep breaths, honestly, really, you know, in the moment when, when you catch yourself right in the middle of something you know, that really does help. And I've, I've personally have found thought stopping, mm-hmm. kind of more of a, you know, CBT strategy, but yes. uh, you know, I, I thought stopping, like when I, when I overthink about something, like if someone doesn't email me back right away and I think, oh no, did I do something to offend them? Right. Uh, you know, is this, is this, you know, whatever is going on, I think of all sorts of things of why they're not emailing me back. And I start worrying about it. And then I go back to my email, my last email to them and think, did I say something yeah. that, you know, I, I, I do all of those things. Yeah. But then I, I do, I, 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 I do some thought stopping and I stop myself and I say, no, you're, you know, completely on a d- different level right now. Just chill and, you know, go and then, and then a couple of days later that I get the email and everything's great. Maybe their child was sick and they couldn't get back to me right, right away or whatever the case is yep. and everything's fine. Right. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and in the combination with that, what I think it can be really effective or what uh, clients say it is super helpful is personifying the anxiety. So separating it from yourself because yes. you are not the anxiety, you are experiencing anxiety, right? Because we always say my anxiety or, you know, that kind of thing. So if we separate it by like, say, naming it like, oh, like uh, I'll name it fiery red. I don't know. That's the first thing that came to mind. But I you're like, it. oh, hey, fiery red, there you are. You're trying to keep me safe again. You're coming in telling me these things. Thanks for your Thanks for your uh, uh, warnings, but I'm okay here. We're good, right? So if we kind of separate it from ourselves, that can be kind of another way to kind of integrate with the thought stopping um, because that narrative can can be like a runaway train, right? We go down oh, yeah. rabbit hole and, and it's hard to get out. So if we can kind of stop it in its tracks and then kind of separate it from ourselves, that can be super impactful as well. Yeah, I love it. And I actually just think you came up with a new children's book that we can write together <laughs> called I Read the Anxiety Ball or something. <laughs> idea. And yeah, I love it. <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, obviously, you know, I work with children and I know you work with more adults, but, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, children, you know, experience it too, you know, um, you know, same as adults. It may look a little differently sometimes, right. um, but it happens. So let me ask you this, because this is something I know that's happened to me in the past. Um, and I know when our, our, our stress hormone called cortisol, if anyone out there listening, um, you know, it's, it's called cortisol, but it's a stress hormone. I know when it gets high, sometimes it, it kind of shuts our brain down to us, you know, to, to, in layman's terms. But so what does happen to our brains when we're experiencing anxiety and why do our minds go blank when we're trying to recall something or just try and articulate something when we're just so anxious? Yeah, it's, yeah, which is super common. So if that happens to you, you're not alone. Yeah, so a lot of things are happening both in the brain and the body. And just to kind of simplify it, um, there's a part of our brain called the amygdala. It's the emotional center. Essentially, it is scanning the environment constantly to 
to sense any threat, any perceived threat or real threat. So like a lion chasing you or maybe an emotional threat, like putting yourself out there in a, in a big presentation or whatnot and being super vulnerable. So this, this amygdala as the part of our brain, it's scanning, scanning, scanning. And when that happens, when it starts to scan, ooh, there's a threat coming. Let's just pretend it's a lion. A lion's coming. It's going to sound the alarms. And just like you said, it's going to flood our body with cortisol, the stress hormone, adrenaline to essentially mobilize us to keep us safe. So then also the um, autonomic nervous system gets kicked into gear, specifically the sympathetic nervous system, which I mentioned earlier, which is that fight flight. And this is going to help us essentially survive, right? If a lion's right. chasing us. Um, but this also happens, the brain can't differentiate between a real and a perceived threat. So it can't differentiate between that lion chasing you and that emotional threat of feeling embarrassed. It, it responds the exact same way. So with the sympathetic energy kind of pulsing through our bodies, we, we, um, the digestive system kind of shuts down and cause we don't need that to survive. We we're kind of push that aside. Our immune system, everything kind of, you know, gets essentially like, um, everything just kicks, kicks into gear essentially right. sure. to, to mobilize our body. So, and until that stress or until we perceive that that stress has passed, then the body starts to calm down and recalibrate. So it, a lot is going on. And if we think about high functioning anxiety specifically, think of it as that, that stress response being on all the time, which is what then leads to that chronic potential issues, chronic um, health issues, physical health, um, chronic illness, things like that. Because our system is not meant to be on all of the time. It's meant to be on when there's a threat of any kind. And then it's supposed to kind of recalibrate. But if we're sort of always on and in that like hyper productivity or productive type of mode, um, you know, we're just not resting, then it, it can really, it, yeah, it's, it's not good. It's not good. And I, I've, it's almost like sometimes I, and I don't know if this is common, but I know at least for myself, there's been times where it's almost like I have this binge anxiety where I'll go, you know, a whole week with just a million things on my to-do list and I'm just go, 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 go. And then on Saturday I decide, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to take a break. I can't handle anymore. It's almost like my, my right before I get to burnout level, and then I almost go through this phase for like three or four days where I can't even look at a computer. I don't want to be on my phone. I just, I want to just get rid of it all. It's almost like this avoidance type level. And then it's hard for me to get back into that high productive mode again. Is it normal to kind of go through that ebb and flow? I mean, that's probably not healthy either, but. Yes. Yeah. The oscillation between kind of that hyper arousal and then what they would call a hypo arousal. Um, it can be really common because, right, the body is super on, super alert, and then it just like shuts down and crashes. And that hypo arousal, and there's all kinds of like nervous system, and I won't get too nerdy on you, um, but the <laughs> hypo arousal is like kind of that like flat, lethargic. Um, your system's just done. It's out. And, and it can be hard because it's, it's swinging from such highs and such, such lows, which is why that you kind of feel that like, okay, super high energy and then just I can't do anything. And then it's like harder to get you back to that place. And usually when we're in that hypo arousal state, so that kind of just like lethargic, kind of depressed, flat, just like eh, meh, that's how yeah. I describe it. We need a little bit of that sympathetic energy to get us back kind of into what they would call our window of tolerance. Um, that's another way to look at our, our um, nervous system. But that window of tolerance is where it kind of feels good. That ebb and flow is a little bit more uh, smooth and kind of um, just a little bit more 
just ease on our system versus the swings, like the high and the low. So it's really right. about finding that internal balance, which is why like nervous system regulation skills is so important. Um, if we don't have that, you know, our, our nervous system has a natural ability to regulate itself for sure. But if we're pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, that's where it starts to get like, oh, it like forgets how to recalibrate itself. So then we kind of got to step in and help support it um, and intentionally really focus on kind of um, – you know, bringing ourselves down and, and like you said, deep breaths or whatever it may be. So, um, yeah, super yeah. common though, super common. Thank you. Well, I, that seems um, normalizing for me <laughs> to yeah, a certain extent. I've been um, there but, and I do notice that if I start my day at the, from the, from the get-go, as soon as I wake up, if I start my day very relaxed with some deep breathing, maybe some meditation, yeah. some quiet time outside, you know, it's hard when you have little kids <laughs> because, you know, sometimes you wake up to a hand in your face because they slept oh, yeah. with you the night before or whatever the case is. So that doesn't always happen right now in my life, but this is the season I'm in. But if I can have that, the rest of my day seems to fall much better into place. Yeah. And I tend to have yeah. less anxiety when just the very beginning of my day starts off that way. Yeah, it it's so true. You know, um, then yeah. kind of like catch up throughout the day, you know, at noon thinking, okay, I need to kind of take a break. Or, you know, if I really intentionally start my day off that way, it definitely helps put it in the right direction. It totally does. Right. Because you're, you're kind of priming your nervous system of like, okay, like this is how we're going to kind of ease into things. And it, it's, it, it starts at a very relaxed, calm, grounded state, which is then going to help bring that sort of, you, you talked about kind of the, the, um, the question of kind of where your mind goes blank, right? So with anxiety, kind of that prefrontal cortex part of your brain, that thinking, the rational planning, that all goes offline when you're super, super anxious because it's just in survival mode. But when we're in that calm, relaxed state, that part of our brain can be really, it can, it can work very well yes. it works the way that it should. So yes, if you're starting your day in that manner, then it can really kind of set a good tone um, and help you also just... Um, uh, recalibrate when you do, uh, you know, have a stressor come at you, like the car in front of you slamming in front of your brakes or right. someone cutting you off, right? You, you're, you're at a more relaxed sort of state where it's, it's not, um, yeah, it's just a little bit easier to, to kind of move through the different states throughout your day. Exactly. Well, let's talk a minute about when it goes in the opposite direction. <clears throat> and again, I work with a lot of children and I see this quite often where, the anxiety levels get so high, they start to have a panic attack. Yeah. So let's say they have a fear of something. Um, let's just say fire. They have a fear of fire. They have so much anxiety about a fire maybe happening in the middle of the night when they're asleep or, mm. you know, them being near a fire. So they can't, you know, they avoid, you know, going camping with their family or just whatever the case is. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, not going to make s'mores at the fire pit because they're afraid of the fire. So it's obviously impacting their life, you know. Um, what what can a parent do or what can uh, and if they maybe the parents the one who has an excessive yeah. fear maybe it's the parent going through this and um and they're having anxiety about leaving the house you know because you said maybe they were they were in a car accident recently and they don't want to get back in the car and so they're having a panic attack every time they have to go pick up their child from school whatever the case is um where do panic attacks come from and maybe do you, if you have any strategies on how we can um you know help our bodies calm when we're in that panic type state yeah um, 
Yes, because they can be very scary and very overwhelming. And like you said, like it's 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 just a heightened level of anxiety, right? Like the fear is it becomes so big that it leads to this really intense experience of of a panic attack. And panic attacks can make you feel like something seriously is wrong. That's why a lot mm-hmm. of people end up in the ER. Um, but with panic attacks, I mean, if, if that's something that you're struggling with and you notice it happening more often than not, I would highly encourage you to reach out for support um, with a you know work with a therapist because sometimes with panic attacks or if it's like a specific phobia, having a gentle sort of guided approach to sort of exposure therapy or working through it or talking through it can be very, very beneficial um, because yeah, definitely stuff to not mess around with if, it, if you're really, if, if, if it's impairing your functioning, right? Right. Um, but I think with panic attacks, like if, if it's something that doesn't happen too often, um, usually a fear around having another one is usually a big piece of it as well. But one of my like go-to coping, and this can be with anxiety as well, um, both panic and anxiety. But the, the goal is, so with anxiety and with even a panic attack, you are so far in the fear or so far in the future that it is hard to kind of even wrap your head around like even where you're at in like physical space. So what can be super, super impactful is getting present, getting sort of in your body, in your mind, in the moment that you are in. And one sort of go-to, and I'm sure you you teach um, your your clients this, but is the five senses. So oh, yes. yeah. So if you're sitting there and you're super overwhelmed, you're starting to feel that panic rise, you're starting to feel the anxiety rise, take notice of the five things that you see in the room or outside. Um, outside is actually even better because then it's like a lot of the nature elements can be really soothing as well. But name five things you see, name four things you hear, name three things that you can feel, name two things that you can, um, what am I missing? I know I was thinking oh. too. <laughs> I was like, yeah. uh, touch, we have touch and yeah, <laughs> and taste. Sure. Everyone knows who says it. So just however order you want to do it, um, that helps you, helps ground you. It helps bring you back in the moment, back in the present. You're in your body, you're in your your mind um, in the sense of just being kind of aware of what's happening because usually the anxiety is taking you somewhere else, right? It's, it's so fearful of whatever is, is happening in your mind that if we kind of bring yourself back in the here and now, it almost sort of shuts down that fight flight, right? It's, it's helping regulate your nervous system. Um, the other thing I would say, um, anything, any like cold exposure. So go grab some ice. If you're at home or if maybe you're at an office or something, go grab some ice Hold it in your hand. Take notice of the sensations. Maybe move it back and forth. If you can splash cold water in your face, that could be good. Even better if you get in a cold shower, right? That can help sort of like stress our nervous system, but in a way that once sort of that cold exposure is like uh, relieved or the stress has gone down, then it helps recalibrate your whole system as well. Um, So those are usually like my go-to if it's like in the moment, in the heat of the moment, super intense of how to kind of reorient yourself. Yes, I love that. I love, I mean, I, I use grounding exercises m- more than I'd like to, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. with my clients and, and things like that. I mean, I, I feel like they just come off the, you know, tip of the tongue most of the time. Like you said, there's kind of your go-tos. Yeah. Um, one other thing too, I don't know if you've ever tried this, but um, is to walk barefoot on grass yeah. or, you know, yeah. even just on the ground, I guess, but anything that's textured, um, you know, to walk barefoot, like you said, like that nature, just being yeah. outside, even just getting outside and getting that fresh air, maybe a little vitamin D from the sun, like just to be out mm-hmm. 
you know, in, you know, not in the environment that you're in. If you're having a panic attack mm-hmm. and you're starting to hyperventilate and you can't, you feel like you can't breathe, go outside because all the air is right there, you know, ready for you. You know, maybe, maybe it's not in your bathroom, you know, where you're confined in this very small space or it's dark or whatever it is, but to get outside and, you know, take your shoes off, ground yourself with the earth and, you know, feel the grass on your feet, you know, look, have your eyes closed and look at your, at the sun and feel the sun in your face. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. And I would even add in there um, a good old, like if you're familiar with yoga, like a good old mountain pose, right? You're really, really grounding and rooting your feet in. You're lengthening that spine. You're really feeling a sense of strength in your body and really zoning in on the sensations that you're feeling in your body. Maybe even some safe places if some parts of your body don't feel safe because of the anxiety. Maybe focus on your toes. Like you said, like what does the grass feel like on your toes? So that sense of also that body posture can also help regulate too. I love that. I love that. Well, those are those are like real, some really good strategies we just shared. So I hope, I hope people yeah. can take note because they really are helpful um, grounding exercises for, you know, any type of anxiety or, oh, yeah. you know, phobias, panic attacks, everything we're talking about. And I know one thing we haven't touched on yet, and I know we're almost out of time, but I just want to, you know, quickly discuss social anxiety or social phobias, Um, because I know, again, I I work with a lot of kids that have it. I know personally a lot of adults that have it, um, and it can be debilitating. So um, where does social anxiety come from? You know, because you could be great one-on-one or with your own family, but the second you get out in public, and I'm not talking about public speaking in front of 500 people at a conference. I mean, I'm talking just, you know, having drinks with a couple of people you don't know or whatever the case is. Totally. Where does that come from? And how can, you know, we, we maybe overcome some of that social anxiety if we have it? Yeah. Um, and also, t- you know, add on the whole global pandemic situation and being isolated for how long. Oh, yeah. People with no social anxiety prior. Now I've seen that so increase with my clients. Like they Absolutely. Have social anxiety. Right. So, um, yes, I think where it comes from, that could, you know, kind of what we said about just general anxiety. It, it can have all kinds of roots. Right. It could have, you know, specific experience in, in school or, or whatnot in a social setting. Um, it also can be kind of rooted in those belief systems. Right. If you feel like you're not enough, you feel like you don't have anything good to say, when you go in a social situation, that, that's not going to make you feel confident to kind of use your voice and, and really share you, whatever it is that you're sharing with, with the social circle. So it can be rooted in a lot of different um, uh, you know, life experiences, childhood, that kind of thing. Um, and it's you know, usually kind of working with therapists or just kind of digging in yourself through journaling or whatever can kind of pinpoint exactly where the roots are and then give you a little bit more insight. But when it comes to managing it, one of the things, and especially if we're talking like um, like a social setting, right? So maybe like a small get together or you know, drinks or something like that, and you and you notice it come up, is one normalize it. Everybody feels anxious at some point, right? Maybe, sure. maybe the, the levels of it are different, but we've all been in that situation where like we're in a new social setting and it's anxiety provoking. It's overwhelming um, because the brain likes to familiar stuff. And when it's ever unfamiliar, um, we, you know, our system starts to, to activate. So exactly. what I always encourage is A, normalize it for yourself. Like this is normal. Everyone's kind of preoccupied with their own stuff. They're probably like thinking about their own stuff. The, the second one would be like actual tactical sort of strategy is this idea of getting curious. So when we're in social settings, we're often really worried of how we are going to come off. We're worried about what we might say or say something stupid. This idea of being humiliated is a big part of social anxiety. So if we kind of switch the gears on ourselves and just get curious about the other people or another person that we're talking to, it can help kind of refocus our energy 
outside of ourselves. So instead of being super focused on what we may do or not do, we're focused on what they're saying and what they're talking about. So getting curious, meaning asking them questions, asking, you know, whatever your, the dialogue is about like just getting curious. Um, and that can help kind of calm your nervous system down and be like, Hey, this is a safe place. This is okay. I'm safe here. And then that can kind of let your more authentic self sort of come out a little bit more naturally because you're not so in your head about what you may say or do, or, you know, being embarrassed or whatnot. Um, so yeah, that's, those are usually my two. I mean, there's all kinds. Oh, I love it. No, you've, you've given us some phenomenal tips today. So thank you. Just, you know, with, High functioning anxiety, general anxiety, social anxiety, panic attacks. I mean, you, you've really given some some really good knowledge um, that I think everyone who's listening right now, you know, is going to take home with them and you right. know and use um, some really good practical, um, you know, coping skills that they can actually use. So, where can people find you um, to get in touch with you, ask more questions, um, possibly get a copy of your book? Um, where can people find you for yeah, more? So you, um, so I have a website, so drkellyvincent.com. and then also I'm on Instagram, and you can find me at um, I think it's dr dot Kelly Vincent. Um, and then also the true you journal, which is kind of a, a, you know, deep dive into just you and, and all your essence that can also be found on Amazon. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Vincent, thank you again so much for being here today. And um, let's go write that children's book together. <laughs> I'm, I'm in. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode and make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.